student and I'm a missionary. I'm a general contractor and I'm a missionary. I'm a barista and I'm a missionary. I'm a designer and I'm a missionary. I'm a teacher and I am a missionary. I'm a musician and I'm a missionary. I'm a mom and I'm a missionary. I'm a tattoo artist and I'm a missionary. I'm a production director and I'm a missionary. I'm a firefighter and I'm a missionary. Good morning, Hope Church, Las Vegas. I uh, can't tell you what a um, privilege this is and how long I've been looking forward to doing this. Vance has been a friend of mine for um, quite some time. I, I say friend, I, um, I mean mentor, uh, because um, he's much, much older than I am. Uh, and I've looked up to him for years. I used to listen to his sermons when I was a kid. Um, so I'd go drift off to sleep. Um, he, is, uh, he loves this church. He has told me about it for years. And uh, he, uh, if half of what he says about you people is true, then you've got to be the greatest um, people on the planet. Uh, and so I am very grateful. Um, yes, clap for yourselves. That's a clap for your, your pastor. You've been a big inspiration to our church uh, just in learning how to engage with the nations. Uh, uh, I'm very humbled to be here. Um, yes, hopefully to bless you some, but also just to learn from you. Um, it has been that way for, for years. It's my first trip out to Las Vegas uh, ever. Uh, I have uh, four kids, you mentioned, the youngest, three. Uh, it was three years old. Uh, he asked, um, well, actually, our babysitter asked him, do you know where mom and dad are right now? And he said, uh, they're in Vegas. And, uh, and, and she said, do you know what people do in Vegas? And he said, yes, they get lost, because that's how he heard it, Las Vegas. Uh, so <laughs> that's what he understands we're doing right now, but uh, we're very grateful to be here. Um, we, uh, God has put this vision for sending into our church, uh, just really through the way that God called me into ministry. Um, which is something I'll probably share uh, a little later, but um, it is, he's given us a vision of planting a thousand churches in our generation, um, released by 2050, um, outside of our church. Uh, we have a lot of college students at our church, uh, which means a couple things about us. Uh, number one, we are dirt poor as a congregation. Uh, when I, uh, I remember, in fact, one of my favorite memories as a pastor is in between uh, a couple of our services, an usher came into my green room area, and he had an offering plate, and in it was a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from a college student uh, with a little note on it that says, silver and gold, have I none, but such as I have, uh, give I unto you. Um, so we are dirt poor as a church, but we also know that we have a lot of potential church planners. And so we train all of them that unless they hear from God audibly, by the time they graduate, they need to plan on spending um, the first two years after they graduate in one of our, our overseas or domestic church planning um, projects. Uh, we call that the Mormonization uh, strategy for our church. Uh, so I know that'll be helpful for you all out here to think through that. Um, but that's what God's given us. He's given us that vision. Uh, currently, we have about 100, I think it's 179 of our members that are living outside of the United States, current members living overseas on one of our, our church planning teams. 131 of those uh, are in what they call the 1040 window. Uh, and so we um, are just beginning. I think our total is at 19 churches domestically and 39 overseas. Uh, 
so we are just beginning this process and look forward to working hand in hand with your church and uh, I don't know, who knows maybe do, doing something together Vance maybe that's a word of prophecy right now but doing something together we're just um, we're very grateful for you all and you have been a huge inspiration to us not just because of what you do here um, but because of what you've done through um, your ministry here to uh, the ends of the earth um, so anyway thank you for letting me be here uh, if you got a Bible I'd love for you to take it out and uh, turn it on um, I know how you guys are out here so you turn it on and you scroll down to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I don't, I'm not sure what images come to mind when you hear the word church, but chances are, uh, at least for most people where I come from, uh, it's probably a good ways off from how they understood the concept of church in the first century. Uh, in the Greek New Testament, the word translated church is ekklesia. Um, and it literally means an assembly. In fact, if you break the word down, it comes from two Greek words, ek, which means out of, kaleo, which means to call. So you think of the church, the original name given to the church as an assembly that was called out around a message or an idea. Um, you think of it like, like a movement, because that's what the early church was. It was a movement. But over the years, a terrible thing happened to the concept of church. Um, people began to think of the church as a place that you went to for religious services. And in fact, our English word church will, will show you that. Our word church doesn't come from the Greek word ekklesia. It comes from the German word kirka. And kirka meant in German a sacred place that people gathered for some kind of religious purpose. Well, that shift in thinking fundamentally changed the way that people related to the church. And so throughout the Middle Ages, church was a place that people attended or an event that people sat through, not really a movement that they were a part of. Um, people didn't even have a Bible that they read. It was something that the priest mediated to them at the place that um, they would go to worship. And so the medieval church ended up becoming a, a series of buildings and an institution that was controlled by powerful people for their own purposes. Um, but then something awesome happened. And that is that God raised up a group of people known as the Reformers. Uh, one of the main Reformers for the English-speaking world was a guy named William Tyndall. Uh, Tyndall, a priest, came to the conviction through reading the Bible um, that the Bible, that Christianity was essentially um, what we said at the beginning, a movement of people who believed a message and were trying to spread it to others. And he realized that if people were going to be devoted to that message, to that movement, um, they had to understand the message and so Tyndale's life's work was to produce the first translation of the Bible um, into English, uh, into common English. And every time Tyndale came to that word church, or that word ecclesia, he translated it into English as congregation instead of church. Uh, I have an actual page from one of the first editions of his Bible that somebody gave to me, and you can see it. Um, instead of the word church, you'll see the word congregation, because he was trying to emphasize that the church was not a place that you went to, the church was a movement that you belonged to. Well, that infuriated church leaders because it undercut their authority. And eventually, Tyndale was tried as a heretic. He was hanged and he was burned at the stake. Um, during his trial, right before he died, he said, made this statement. He said, if God spares my life or protects this ministry ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Uh, say that to the religious leaders. Um, his last words as he was being burned at the stake were, Lord, open up the king of England's eyes. Uh, if you've ever had a King James Bible, you can see whether or not God answered that prayer. Um, Tyndale's Reformation spread everywhere throughout England, and eventually out of it came a man named William Carey. 
who began what we now call the modern missionary movement of people carrying the gospel all over the planet. But here's what I want you to take from that as we get into Acts chapter 1. It's this, listen, the danger of the church in every age is to cease being a movement of people moving and becoming, right, the, the, the gospel message that God has for the world and instead becoming a ministry that provides religious services to people or even worse, a place that people simply attend. And that's probably a pretty good church for us to ask ourselves, for you individually to ask yourself continually, is church more something that I come to for a religious service of some kinds, or is the church a movement that I'm a part of? Because see, the thing about movements is that they move, right? And so if you're not moving, you're not part of the movement. I've heard, I've heard church described this way as, um, it's like a, like, like a college football game. A college football game is 22 guys in desperate need of rest, surrounded by 22,000 in desperate need of exercise, right? <laughs> and for, for a lot of people, that's what church is, is it, it's a... It's, a, it's an event they come to. Um, it's a service that is provided. Is this church? How would you describe this church? Is this church in this community, is it an institution that provides religious services for the community surrounding Las Vegas, or is it a movement um, that people belong to? Acts chapter 1, I'm going to show you how this movement started and show you what propelled that movement and then try to draw out some implications for us. Um, as you get into verse 6, you'll see that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. And he now gathered his t- disciples together on a hillside. And so verse 6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now they're asking a question that theologians call eschatology. What is going to happen in the end times? Really what they're asking is, Jesus, what is your next move? Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And don't worry about this, fellas. I'll raise up my servant, Tim LaHaye, in a few years. He'll write the Left Behind series. It'll answer all your questions. Verse 8, you will, however, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Now, this has got to be, honestly, one of the strangest scenes in the New Testament, doesn't it? it? Never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. He just laid onto them the assignment to take the gospel message, which nobody knows but them, He has assigned them to take it to every nation on earth. And these are not people of power or influence. These are carpenters. These are fishermen. People who, most of whom, had never been more than 50 miles outside of their hometown. And then after laying on them the largest assignment ever given to a group of people, he leaves. With no instructions, no plan of action, no explanation, he just leaves. And they're like, wait, what? The whole world? As he's ascending into heaven, they're like, do you realize how big the whole world is? And he's like, yep, I can see it from here. You don't know how big the world is. And you're going to take the gospel to every nation. And that was it. That was it. And yet this movement swept the world. And you, knew, and you and I are sitting here in a very non-Galilee kind of place 2,000 years later as a result of that message entrusted to that group of unqualified people. There are three convictions that they had that you'll see here on which this movement was built. 
Convictions that if you hold them, you'll be part of the movement. Convictions which, if they are at the core of this church, and I, I know that they are, will make this church part of that movement. The first conviction was, number one, that the message was true. That the message was actually true. He said, you will be my witnesses. Witnesses were people who simply testified to what they had seen and heard. They had seen Jesus die on a cross and resurrect from the dead. And Jesus had said he had done this as a substitute for sinners. He was another religious prophet with, a, with another religious message that needed to be spread around. He was God himself that had come on a rescue mission to save us. He had died the death that humanity deserved to die. He had lived the life they should have lived and died the death they were condemned to die so that he could save them as a gift of his grace. That meant that there were not multiple ways to get to God. Because if there were, God would not have put his son through this. He would have given another religious program. He would have been another prophet with another way that you could get your life in order. But that's not who Jesus was. Jesus said, I'm God himself that has come to earth to do what you could never do. That's why when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way that this could happen, let this cup pass for me. If there were multiple ways to get to God, that would have been the time for God the Father to say, actually, there is another way. Then why don't you leave these people away to be sincere and to do good things? But that's not what the Father said. There is no other way. So Jesus went to a cross and he died the death that you and I were condemned to die. And if that were true, that meant it did not matter to them how unpopular the message made them because they had to testify to it. Over the years, I've often, I saw something on the news years ago where um, it was out here on the West Coast. Um, there was an earthquake um, in California. And uh, uh, this guy uh, who was telling the story said, he said, I was driving my car about to turn across one of the bridges that went on uh, over, uh, over the multiple bodies of water out there. Uh, he said, uh, he says, and as I, right before I did it, the earthquake happened, so I pulled my car off the side of the road, only lasted for 10 or 15 seconds. He said, and then I, um, uh, he said, I, it was done, and so I, I didn't think it was that big of a deal, so I, I got back on the road, and he says, I'm driving across this bridge. He said, I noticed the taillights of the car in front of me just kind of disappear. He said, I thought that was odd, so I stopped the car and realized that this, the, uh, this section of the bridge had dropped out. And this car, what I'd seen is I'd seen them drive over the edge and plunge about 75 feet. And he said, I knew that everybody in the car was dead. He said, I turned around. It is about 3.30 in the morning. He said, I turned around and I looked. And he said, I could see cars coming across the bridge toward where I was. He said, so I began to wave my arms to try to get them to, to stop. Now, I mean, here's a question. You're driving across a bridge at 3.30 in the morning. And there's a guy outside of Los Angeles waving his arms. Are you going to stop? The guy said, no, he said, he said, I watched as four cars went by me at probably 65 miles an hour, every one of them plunging to their death. He said, then I noticed, he said, this, this bus that began to come across the bridge. He said, and I made up my mind that if that bus was going to go over the edge, it would have to take me with it. He said, so I took off my outer coat. He said, I began to wave my arms frantically. That bus was flashing its lights and honking its horn. He said, but I wouldn't move. He said, and he finally got stopped. He gets out of the bus. He's cussing at me. He said, but I showed him what I, was, what I had seen. He realized it. He said, he parked his bus so nobody else could go across the edge of, that, edge of that thing. And we stopped people from going. Here's what I thought when I'm hearing this report. If you or I had been the first one on the scene of that accident, right, what, what, what would your response have been to that? I would imagine it would be a lot the same way, the same thing, right? I mean, you'd stop. You'd try to get people to stop. Would you care they thought that you were insane or out of your mind? Of course you wouldn't, right? Because you see what they do not see. For those people that understand what the gospel teaches about the destiny of people, about the blood of Jesus, then yes, they are regarded as fanatics, but that's just part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? 
And it, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean you become a weird person or you, you start to violate all kinds of social cues. It just means that there's something that you understand that you cannot shut up about, that you have to tell people what kind of person knows what we know about the future and then says, I'm just going to stay silent about it and I'm not going to do what I can to take it to others. See, they were convinced this message was true and that radically changed everything about their lives. It was in college that I came to understand this. I was planning on going into law school and everything was lined up to, um, to go and pursue a career as a lawyer, a Christian lawyer. I'd set one semester to just study the book of Romans in my time with God and I read it over and over and over again. And I'll never forget the day that the truth that people have to hear about Jesus, that there really is only one way to be saved. I remember when the weightiness of that actually set in on my heart. It was a concept I've been taught at my church. I knew how to, to explain it. But there's a difference in seeing a doctrine or understanding it and feeling it. And I remember when, when Romans 10, 14, which you heard referred earlier to in this service, that fantastic song was written on that verse. How are they going to call on the one they've never heard about? And how can they hear? How can they call unless, they, unless we go and we preach to them? Remember when the weightiness of that just began to crush, it seemed like, my soul. There's nothing wrong with going into law. There's nothing wrong with going into whatever field that God has you. But for me, for me, God began to open my eyes to what it meant for 2.2 billion people in the world to not have even heard the name of Jesus. And I knew in that moment I had three options, really. The first option I could do is I could deny it. I could deny that message. And let me tell you how strong that that temptation was. The, the road to liberalism is wide. And the reason that a lot of people go down it is because there are very inconvenient truths that God tells us about his judgment and his mercy. And I felt the pull to become somebody who just began to pick and choose parts of the Bible. But see, the Bible's not a salad bar that you pick and choose what you want and leave what you don't. If it's God's word, if we're witnesses to truth and not inventors of truth, then what he says is true. And what we, we have to, well, I'm mean, getting ahead of myself. My, the second implication was I could ignore it. That seemed to be what most people in the church that I went to did, is we could go on talking about church like it was a, a club, and we're trying to get people to join our club, and look how many people come to our club, and look at all the, and I knew that that's not really, you can't do that. That's not a real, I couldn't close, turn off half of my mind to what I knew to be true. So you could deny it, you could ignore it, and the third option was to embrace it. Embrace it, not in the sense that I'm responsible for all of it, because I know that God is the one who is responsible to complete the Great Commission, but I could offer myself to God and say, Lord, here am I, send me. The way God changed my direction was to go into a place where I became a missionary and then a pastor who sends missionaries. It won't be the same for you, but I think the prayer ought to be the same. You see, the question is no longer, listen, the question is no longer, does God want me to use, want to use me in the mission? Right, you show me God if, if that's what you want from that. That question was answered when Jesus called disciples. The question is where and how does he want to use you in the mission? You see, in college, I was waiting on God to spell out for me some kind of assignment that God had for me. You know, like I'm gonna go on pursuing what I want from life, and if you think differently, then you tell me. And I call it the Cheerios method of discerning the will of God. You know, where you stare at your Cheerios every morning and wait on God to spell something out? All my Cheerios ever spelled out was ooh, that's all they ever said. That never happened to me. But see, on that day, my prayer changed from God, are, not are you going to call me, but God, you show me where and how. And see, that was a fundamentally different prayer, and that's when God began to steer me to the place that he wanted me to go. There is no such thing as someone who really believes the gospel and sits on the sidelines. So see, here's my question for you. Do you really, think about this, do you really believe the testimony? 
I know that you would say, most of you would say that you do. But are you in that category where you've just kind of ignored it? Have you really grappled with the implications of being the witnesses that God has chosen and put his message in their mouths and said, you're going to be the ones that tell the world? Have you really grappled with that? Maybe even better, does your life show that you believe that? Because if what your mouth says you believe and what your life says you believe are different, then what your life says is a better indication than what your mouth says. They really believed the message was true, number two. They believed everyone was called. They believed everyone was called. Jesus had given the Great Commission to them. He didn't give it to the Pharisees. He didn't give it to the Sanhedrin. He didn't give it to the people who'd been to seminary. He gave it to them. They were fishermen and carpenters. In our days, we've talked, turned calling into this thing that we, we act like it's a sacred privilege for a select few. But that is never how the Bible talks about it. In fact, one of my favorite parables that Jesus taught, it seems to be an unknown one, but um, Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at a party. And uh, he looks around the party and he notices that all the rich and famous people from the, the town are there. And, uh, and uh, you know, Jesus wasn't rich or famous, but he could walk on water, which, you know, gave him an inn and places like that. Um, and so he looks around and he, uh, he turns to his disciples and he says, when you throw a party, don't invite all the rich and famous people to your party. He says, in fact, he says, instead, invite the poor and the lame and the blind. Now, here's what you got to understand. In Jesus' day, and maybe in our day too, in Jesus' day, a party was not just a social function, it was a business function. Because at, 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 at a party, a rich person would invite their other rich friends, and if you got invited, that meant you got to meet all of his rich friends. So you would invite the people to your party that you wanted, to, you, you wanted them to invite you to their party, because that's just how business got done. So what Jesus is telling them is economic suicide. Because he's saying to them, when you have a party, don't think about the people that can pay you back. You throw your party for people who can never pay you back. Now, he's not simply trying to give a, a rule about your birthday parties. What he is doing is giving you an outlook on life that would fundamentally change how we approach our careers. It changes how we approach our money. Think of it this way. If your life were a party, who would your party of your life be being thrown for? If your life, you thought of it in the metaphor of a party, who would you be throwing the party of your life for? Because Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, then you're going to fight, throw the party of your life for people that can never pay you back. Why? Because I threw the party of what I had for you who could never pay me back. You see, remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. What are you doing with your riches? What are you doing with the richness of your talent, the richness of what God has given you, the resources he has placed in your hand? Are you throwing that party for people, for things that pay you back, or are you throwing it, back for, throwing it for those who cannot pay you back, knowing that it's eternity that makes those investments worth it? Think of it this way. Where would you be if Jesus had leveraged his talent and resources and position for you the way that you were leveraging yours for others? Where would you be personally if you, if, excuse me, if Jesus leveraged his talents and strengths for you the way that you're leveraging them for others? Where would you be if Jesus had not come to die to save you? Because the, the answer is, listen, you'd be at exactly the same place that 2.2 billion people in the world are without you and me. And no, the mission does not depend on us. It's the Holy Spirit's mission. Yes, I get that. But I'm simply saying that those people who have been touched by the gospel and believe the gospel, they become like the gospel. The gospel that though he was rich for our sakes became poor. 
This was a God worth going all over the world for, and the disciples did not believe that that applied to a select few, that that applied to everybody. In fact, if you'll just let me talk to you the way that I talk to our church sometimes, sometimes I feel like in our church we've invented this whole language of calling just to mask the fact that two-thirds of our people aren't really following as disciples of Jesus. That call to, to leverage your life that way, that's not a call that comes after. That is the call to salvation. Because the call to give what you have in response to the Savior who gave it all away for you is the call to follow. It's going to look different for us, but that's not something for a select few. See? And by the way, maybe give you a little interesting insight here. As the book of Acts unfolds, Luke, the author of Acts, seems to go out of his way to show you that the gospel is going to go forward around the world faster through ordinary people than it is even through the apostles. Now keep in mind, the apostles are not even religious superstars. They're just fishermen and carpenters and blue-collar workers. But even after putting you know, the apostles, if you look at the strategic places in Acts, watch this, Acts 8, 1. Gospel's still in Jerusalem. Jesus had told them to take it to the whole world, but they're hanging out in Jerusalem because they like each other. All right? So Acts 8, 1, they're all in Jerusalem. So God sends persecution and sends them everywhere, scatters them, preaching the word. But have you ever noticed this little phrase? I've never seen it. Acts 8, 1, the end of it. It says, they went everywhere preaching the word except for the apostles. Luke makes sure that you know that the first time the gospel goes outside of Jerusalem, it's not in the lips of an apostle. On the lips of an apostle, it's in the mouths of ordinary people. See? The first time the gospel is preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, to somebody outside, guess who it's done by? Not Peter, not Paul, not James, not John, Philip, who's not an apostle. See? Um, when, uh, here's one. Um, the longest sermon with the most dramatic effect was not preached by Peter. No, it wasn't preached by Paul. It was preached by Stephen, a layman. Um, the, last, the, the, the plot of the last half of the book of Acts is to get the gospel to Rome. Because Paul figures that if he can get the gospel to Rome, from there it can go out throughout the whole world. So Paul, i got to get Jesus where he's never been named. got to take the gospel to where he's never been named. When Paul finally gets to Rome, Acts 28, 7, have you ever noticed who he's greeted by when he gets there? The brothers. The brothers means people who already knew Jesus, who had gotten there before him on the wings of business, who had gotten there because normal business took them there, and they beat Paul. And what Luke is trying to show you, that the gospel will get around the world faster through the wings of business than it will even through the apostles. I'm, you know, not, I'm not an apostle, but guys like Vance and me, we're in the apostolic type of ministry. It is you, though, who will end up getting the gospel around the world faster. And you've got to embrace that because that's the calling that God gave to you is to ask the question of how you can be leveraged, how your skill can be leveraged to carry the gospel around the world. Missiologists tell us that the next great wave of missions will happen on the wings of business. If you lay a map of world poverty out and then overlay it with a map of world evangelization, you'll find that the places in most need of business development are also the places in most need of evangelization. Globalization, revolutions in technology, urbanization have given the business community nearly unlimited access to the peoples of the world. For Christians in business, we call it the 1040 window. It's the, between the 10th parallel and the 40th parallel where most of the unreached people live. For people in business, um, that's not a window, that's a door. Because it's a door that God has sovereignly put in their path because it is the skill. Maybe God gave you that skill in business. Maybe God gave you that skill in business for you to leverage it to see people know the gospel who couldn't know it otherwise. Not every Christian in business, this will be the answer, but I think it is for a lot of us. 
Maybe it won't be the most lucrative bottom line for you, but it will open up a whole nation to the gospel. There's a kid named Scott at our church who um, has a job with a very prestigious sports marketing firm. Graduated from, from Duke, top of his class, just I mean, he, he could have had any job he wanted. He got a job with a sports marketing firm in Raleigh-Durham. Um, great career advancement. Um, he heard that his company had a um, position, a new position open up in the Middle East. It's not a very you know, good career move for him, but he, he knew that he could be connected to one of our church planning teams in the Middle East. So he resigns from his place in Raleigh-Durham, transfers over to the Middle East. He's finishing his contract there. He's actually back right now because he's planning to re-enter the Middle East now um, with his own sports marketing firm that he is beginning there after having served there for several years. Now, that's one of those 179 that I told you about that doesn't cost the Summit Church a dime. Doesn't cost anybody a dime because his company is paying him, and now he's paying himself. Right? And that's a way that he is leveraging that. Here's what we tell our, our, our college graduates and our young professionals, or really anybody. You want a missional statement for your life? Listen, do what you do well for the glory of God, then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Whatever you do, do it well for the glory of God, then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. God didn't make all of us pastors and, and teachers and professional missionaries, but he made you good at something. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. you see a man skillful in his work, he'll do it before kings. So you do what you do well for the glory of God, then you'll stand before the kings of the earth, and then you can carry the gospel to them and open up whole nations to the gospel. So see, their conviction, first of all, was that the message was true. Secondly, that everybody was called. Number three, that they've been given the Holy Spirit. The third conviction was they've been given the Holy Spirit. He said, you're going to receive my power. Interestingly, Jesus said this spirit was so important that they should not do a thing until the Spirit arrived, Luke 24, 49. You ever think about that? The first assignment Jesus gave after the Great Commission, do nothing. Just wait. You know that some of the apostles had to be type A like Vance and me, right? And they're sitting around going, wait, we got like, I mean, Peter, you got to start a preaching tour and... Um, John, you got to write a biography, and uh, Paul got to write some theological books, and um, uh, uh, Thomas, you should do an apologetics manual. We got to organize. We got to get a conference going. We got a brochure. I mean, every, they were thinking like that. And Jesus said, Nope. Do not do a thing until the Holy Spirit comes on you, because until the Holy Spirit comes on you, everything you do is going to be absolutely useless. And when He comes, then they're not going to be able to stop you. If you look back in the opening verse of Acts 1, kind of flip up there for a minute, you'll see Luke says this, in the first book that I wrote, what's the first book? This is important, watch this, Luke, right? So Luke is the gospel, story of Jesus in his three years on earth. Acts is the next book. In the first book I wrote, old Theophilus, that's a dude he's writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began, if you underline stuff in your Bible, underline the word began or press on it until it says highlight and then hit highlight. Um, Jesus began to do and to teach. Now here's what's key. Look, began. Began implies continuation. Watch this. Listen. It's not that in the gospel of Luke, Jesus taught, and then now that he's back in heaven, the church teaches and works. It's that Jesus began through his earthly body in the gospels, and now Jesus continues through his body, the church, and the Holy Spirit. Do you realize the power that gives us? Jesus has told them this, one of, those, one of those promises that is so astounding, I'm tempted almost not to take it seriously. John 14, 12, greater works than I have done, you will do. Really? Who in here, don't think theologically, just think like 
because I know that you're like, well, yes, I have. But um, who in here feels like they've done a greater work than Jesus? Anybody raise the dead? You ever, like, take five loaves, two fish, feed 5,000? You ever done that? You ever walked on water? Anybody? How could what we do possibly be greater than Jesus? Greater meant that we would connect people to the point of those miracles. So just like Jesus opened blind eyes, we would preach in a way that would open spiritual blind eyes. Just like Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we would preach resurrection from the dead to sinners, and they would be reconciled to God, and that was greater than the actual act of raising Lazarus from the dead. But here's what you realize. The exact same power that made the blind eyes see and lame men walk and dead men get out of a grave is the same power that is at work in you to testify. That is a voice that shakes nations. It's a voice that brings dead men out of the graves, and it's the voice that is speaking through you. In fact, in one place, in another one of his promises, John 16, Jesus said, if you understood who the Holy Spirit was, you'd actually be glad that I was going back to heaven if you get him. Could you, again, would you think about the absurdity of that statement, what it sounded like to the apostles? How awesome would it be to have Jesus by your side for three years? What would, what would your life be like if Jesus was beside you now? Right? You're at a church fellowship and you run out of checks mix. Bam, he multiplies it. <laughs> Vance of church leaders gives you a headache. Bam, Jesus, you know, takes away your headache. Right? You, you know, you, you, you're sick. He, he heals your sickness. Your dog gets run over. He resurrects your dog back to life. Your cat gets run over. He digs a hole and, and helps you, you bury your cat because that's how he feels about cats. We know that. All right? Preach it, preacher. I know what some of you say. All right, no. Okay, maybe that's not exactly what it would be like. But how great would it be for Hope Church to hear that we hired a new pastor and the new pastor, associate pastor, is Jesus. And that would be an awesome, that'd be an awesome guy to have on your team. Yet, Jesus said the power of the Holy Spirit on an ordinary believer would be greater than if Jesus actually stayed and joined your ministry team. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that in such a way that it's now transformed how you see yourselves and how you see one another? Read Acts 1-8 as a promise to you, see. But you... You, insert your name right there in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Are you that kind of witness? As a pastor of a church that I think is very similar to this one, here's what I hear back to that when I really start to press this. No, pastor, I don't have what it takes. (laughs) Yes, you do. You have the Spirit of God. Peter in Acts 2, when he's fleshing this out a little bit, is going to make the most, another one of these astounding promises. He says, the Holy Spirit is coming on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. You see, prophecy, speaking the word of God, was something that was reserved for heroes in the Old Testament, right? If you were a prophet, then you dressed in weird clothing, and you got a book of the Bible named after you, like Ezekiel, Right? That which was reserved for heroes in the Old Testament has become the standard fare for every believer in the new. What Ezekiel and Jeremiah experienced when the Spirit of God came on them is what you experienced. In fact, Jesus said this. You know who the greatest prophet to ever live was according to Jesus? You know who it is? John the Baptist. You ever seen this statement? Jesus said, yes, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that ever lived, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. 
greater because you have the Holy Spirit that John did not have, and, or at least didn't have permanently, and you know the truth about the resurrection. Whoever's least in the kingdom of heaven. All right, in this room right now, listening to me, somebody is the least talented, has the least ability, right, has the worst past. Mathematically, that has to be true. Right now, as I'm saying this, you're like, I, that might be me. I think I have the least talent. And God in heaven is like, yep. You're at the bottom of the pile. I mean, it's just, you know, it ha- mathematically, it has to be true. Yet, if that's you, you're greater than John the Baptist because the Holy Spirit is within you. So you have what it takes. You say, well, it's not my gift. Evangelism is not my gift. Yes, there are a few people with an unusual ability in it. But this was a responsibility given to all believers. Listen to this. Every single time someone is filled with the Spirit of God in the book of Acts and Luke, every single time they speak the Word of God. In fact, i got like 15 references I'm not going to read here to you. But every one of them, he was filled with the Spirit of God or she was filled with the Spirit of God, and they spoke this way. It is impossible to say you have the fullness of the Spirit of God here if the Word of God is not coming out here. It doesn't matter your personality or your temperament. The Spirit of God in the heart always produces the Word of God in your lips. So read Acts 1-8 as your promise. You will be my witnesses. I hear this one a lot. Well, I witness with my life. I just, you know, I'm a good example. I'm always like, how? How do you do that? I mean, how does your, I mean, your life is awesome, but a witness is not a story about how awesome you are. Your witness is a story about what Jesus did. The gospel is an announcement, right? And saying I witnessed with my life is like, if it's not backed up by words that you say, it's like trying to watch a newscast with the sound turned down. You're like, well, I know that guy's excited, but I don't know why. And I don't know, he thinks somebody's in danger. Is it me? I, I don't know. That's impossible, right? <laughs> what I tell our congregation is this. Saying, you ever heard the statement by Francis of Assisi, or at least it's attributed to him, um, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. You ever heard that? That sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? It's complete baloney. <laughs> Saying preach the gospel if necessary, use words, is like me telling you, um, tell me your phone number. If necessary, use digits. <laughs> I mean, your life is awesome, but I'm just not going to get from your life that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for sinners so that I can be saved through repentance and faith in him, no matter how much you share your lunch with me, all right? So, yeah, you've got to actually use words and not just witness with your life. The life backs up the verbal witness. You're like, well, I don't have time. That's one, whether we verbalize it or not. You're like, hey, J.D., I get up, I drink coffee, I go to work, I come home, I try to volunteer at the church, I play with my kids a little bit, watch a little TV, go to bed, get up the next day, wash, rinse, repeat, do it again. When when am I going to fit in evangelism and sharing, being a witness one of our pastors at our church says to people, I love this, he says, oh, you're busy? Uh, well, Jesus was busy too, you know, saving the world and everything. But the difference was he was busy with people. He was busy with people. Uh, one of my favorite definitions of evangelism is doing normal life with gospel intentionality. Evangelism is doing normal life with gospel intentionality. In the Great Commission, it's as you go, preach the gospel. I once heard a lady say that she, um, she's like, I, I, I'd really like to get more involved in my son's, his soccer team and, and leading it. She said, but I, I just got so much ministry I got to do with the church. And I'm listening to her like, why don't you see going to that soccer practice and sharing Christ with all the lost people there, why don't you see that as the ministry of the church? Because Jesus didn't die to keep us all in a little huddle. 
right, talking to each other. He died so that we would take the gospel outside of the church. Talking to other people about Jesus makes me feel weird. That's what I hear. Of course it does. I mean, I've heard evangelism defined as two very nervous people talking to each other, right? But here's the thing. The message is important enough to be worth a little weirdness. In fact, I would say it's worth not only risking some relationships, I think it's worth rethinking your career, perhaps, or at least rethinking the placement of it. I I know this is not how God applies it to everybody, but I have a friend, uh, another, actually another friend named Scott, who um, he serves right now as a, on one of our church planning teams in Central Asia. And Scott um, told me recently, he said, um, he said I was recently um, drafted, I guess, by a large Christian college who wanted me to come and serve as their missions pastor. He said, it's a great position. He said, I would have access to hundreds, thousands of students. It pays fantastic. He said, the president of that university He said, in an attempt to try to woo me there, said this. He said, Scott, I literally have 100 resumes on my desk of people who want this job, but I feel like God wants you to do this. Scott said he was saying this to try to encourage me and try to, you know, get me to come. He said, but how I heard when, as the words are coming out of his mouth, he said, this is how the Holy Spirit interpreted them for me. Scott, there are at least 100 people in line to take this job if you don't want it. And he looked at me and he said, if I left this place in Central Asia, there is not a person on the planet who would come to replace me. He said, so I will stay. I will say no to where I'm needed so I can say yes to where I'm irreplaceable. You see, the Great Commission demands differences in how we think. Charles Spurgeon, if Jesus is precious to you, You will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it in your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent because your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here, says Spurgeon, is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not know him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, you're like one has found honey. You will call others to taste of its sweetness. You're like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go and tell all the hungry crowds in all the world that you have found Jesus and you are anxious that they should find him too. Do you believe the message? Have you embraced your call? Whatever it is. And have you been filled with the Holy Spirit?